What causes fights? That's the question that James chapter 4 opens with, isn't it? What causes fights and quarrels among you? It's a good question, but I think we know the answer, don't we? Just ask any child who started the fight, and the answer is immediate. It's him, it's her, it's them, it's anyone but me. We all know that we live in a world where fights exist. We're a people who are often, who often disagree and who don't always sit well with that disagreement, being quick to speak, desperate to convince, and slow to listen and appreciate and understand. On a global scale, we see division and tension almost everywhere we look, right? Dividing politically, in extreme forms, spilling over into warfare and killing. Dividing on ethics, our agendas against one another, taking the form of Twitter tirades and cancel culture. Closer to home, we divide personally. Families with sometimes decade-long grievances. Friendships that crumble. We almost seem to live in a world now where we don't expect our marriages to last. And we certainly don't need to teach our children how to squabble and bicker. And before we start feeling pleased that all of this kind of exists out there, remember, James here isn't writing to his local council or to his MP. James is writing to the church. He's writing to you and to me. He's just spoken about the wisdom from heaven, chapter 3 and verse 17, that is peace-loving, considerate, submissive, and full of mercy. But then he notes that church is often the place, sometimes even especially the place, where division becomes rife. We rub each other up the wrong way. We get frustrated. Our personalities seem to clash. There's a whole range of people just here in this room, a web of histories and personalities, emotions and backgrounds. And when human beings get together, well, there's fireworks. What did you just say to me? How dare you talk to me like that? I'm going to give you a piece of my mind. What causes fights? Well, there's a lot of mileage in figuring out the answer here. We've got an exciting half an hour. If we could just get a handle on the why, well, maybe we could start to live in a more peace-loving kind of world. A world, as John Lennon puts it, with no divisive religion, no countries that go to war, no possessions that foster jealousy. The world and the church could live as one, maybe. But even though we've had thousands of years of human history... Uh, of politicians and policy makers, well, we haven't really got that far in determining an answer. What causes us to fight? Maybe it's lack of education. Maybe it's some sort of, I don't know, evolutionary tribalism. Maybe we're just insecure. Maybe it's everyone else but me. Well, in today's text, James rather provocatively reveals that the Bible's answer to the division in our, in our world comes from our hearts. That the impulse to fight, 
to quarrel, to divide and to disagree comes not from something out there, but comes, verse 1, from your desires that battle within you. Now, I think that's a pretty controversial claim. Our world rather likes our desires. It says that they are good and that we should follow them. As long as you're not hurting anyone else, do what you want, right? Pursue your desires and you will find self-fulfillment and happiness. But the Bible's picture of desire is maybe that little bit more complex. And so in today's talk, really, what we're going to do is first of all look at James's definition of desire and we'll see how actually that is the thing that often drives us to division, both with God and with one another. Desire that drives us to division is the first point. Secondly, we will contrast our desires with God's desires and see God's disposition of grace towards us in a world where we so often don't long for him at all. Grace that grabs us for God. And finally, we will see that the only response to that grace, the only response that makes any sense at all, is a humility that helps us grow in holiness, enabling us to walk with God and love one another. A desire that drives us to division, a grace that grabs us for God, and humility that helps us in holiness. It's a bit corny because they all begin with the same letters. Do you notice that? But I hope that makes sense. So let's dive into thinking a little bit about desire. I wonder what it is that you want. All of us have desire, don't we? We all want a diversity of things. Often we want good things like peace and family and good health. Sometimes we know that we can also have some bad desires. A greed for more money than we need or, or a desire to see someone hurt who has hurt us. But we all desire. And whether we like it or whether we know it or not, we're always going to move towards what we desire. It's kind of hard not to. And so the first thing James seeks to impress upon us is that our desires are powerful, extremely powerful, probably more powerful than we realize. Just look uh, with me at verse 2. You desire... But you do not have, and so you kill. Whoa, James. That's kind of strong language, right? The other week, I uh, really fancied a McDonald's. I know, I know. I think I'd already had my tea. I was just, you know. And I drove slightly out of my way to go and get one. And when I arrived, I discovered that the place was closed. Staff shortage, apparently. Now, I was mildly annoyed... I was maybe a little angry, but I didn't go and slaughter the next person I saw. <laughs> My unfulfilled desire didn't drive me to murder. Isn't James being a little bit extreme here? Well, I don't think that James is arguing that every single unfulfilled desire in our hearts, however small, compels us to kill. But he is, with language that is provocative, pointing out that our deepest desires... The things we really long for and base our lives around, well, they're often selfish and they are powerful. And when they are unfulfilled, they do lead to quarreling and to fighting. 
to comparing and to coveting, to anger and resentment, which in its extreme forms does move in the direction of death. Our hearts have these powerful, selfish seeds within them. The desire for status, which allows envy to blossom. The desire to protect ourselves, which causes us to lash out at others. The desire for revenge, that can nurture bitterness in our hearts for years. Desire, selfish desire, is powerful. And James draws this out even further. You'll be familiar with the image of a fortune hunter, right? An Indiana Jones or Lara Croft, some daring adventurer type figure who traverses deep into foreign lands in search of lost treasure. I don't know whether such people really exist or indeed whether they're particularly successful if they do. But such stories all begin in a similar way, don't they? With a dusty old piece of parchment with an X written on it. Here lies the treasure, the lost city, fame and riches and fortune. But there's a number of things that could be wrong with such a map. It's possible that the map, that the X, might not be in the right place. And when you get to the spot, there's just nothing there. The map could be a joke, a fraud, or a fiction. Or the X might be in the right place, but it might not quite lead you to what you were hoping for. Maybe the treasure's already been looted, or, or it's not quite as grand a haul as you'd, as you'd expected. I think James is saying something similar about our desire in verses 2 and verses 3. We are a people who are looking to fulfill our desire in the wrong place. The X on our internal maps is in the wrong place. And then... Even when we do sort of get to the right place, we end up looking for the wrong thing and being disappointed by what we find. Just look at the end of verse 2. The reason we don't have what we want is, rather simply, because we don't ask God for it. Now, God isn't an ATM where we punch in the numbers and the cash comes out. But God is the good creator of this world. He made us, you and me, and he made our hearts, as one ancient theologian says, to be restless until they find their rest in him. It is in God, of course, that where we can find satisfaction for the deepest longings of our heart. But so many of us try to remove God from the picture, either subtly or explicitly, seeking our fulfillment in life outside of God. But it gets even worse. Because even when I do look in the right place, when I do go to God, says James, I still don't get what I'm looking for, because I'm looking for the wrong thing. I'm asking for the wrong thing, asking with wrong motives. Rather than seeking God himself, I'm seeking my own pleasure, verse 3, and really looking to the world for satisfaction. 
And that's what James means, I think, by this somewhat brutal language of calling his readers an adulterous people and describing it as friendship with the world. When someone commits adultery, they are seeking to find their pleasure and satisfaction in someone other than their spouse, right? And so it is with us and with God. The Bible often characterizes our relationship with God as like a marriage. And though we are in that relationship, our instinct is often to love and to long for the things of this world. Loving the creation rather than the creator, committing spiritual adultery as we follow our misdirected desires away from God and to the world. That's what we mean by this word worldliness. That's the first part of the title of this talk. And this is why our desires drive us to division. They divide us, first of all, from God. James is very clear on this point, and his tone is one of rebuke. You adulterous people. God is angry with his people who have spurned him. They have become, we have become enemies of God. And then, facing in the wrong direction, with powerful but unfulfilled desires, we are driven to fight with one another, constantly comparing and one-upping as we seek to quench our thirst with the salt water of what the world offers rather than the riches of God's fountain. You too sang, didn't they? I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Isn't all this a stark and brutal picture of the reality of our world and at times our churches? Unfulfilled desire, brokenness and division, fights and quarrels, enemies of God and enemies of one another. And James says that this seeps into the church, even those of us who are Christians, those of us who know the gospel well, those of us who know the Bible richly. Well, we're still tempted to find our fulfillment in the world. Our powerful desires remain unfulfilled, therefore, and thus we fight. Is there any hope? Well, I want us to pause for a moment here and dwell upon the God whom we have spurned. Hope really can't come from ourselves, if the problem is our hearts. And so the only place we can go is looking to the one whom we have spurned. And the imagery James chooses to use here is, as we have seen, that of a marriage. Flirtation with the world is serious because it's spiritual adultery. And James is rebuking those of us, which really, in lots of ways, is all of us who move in that direction. God is not indifferent. There is a righteous anger at the pain, if we can use that language of God, of betrayal and infidelity. And it is right for us to sit with that for a moment. These are provocative words. James is criticizing you, you adulterous people, 
pricking your consciences if you are drifting from God. But if we left it there, it would be a sorry story indeed. A beautiful marriage, a hideous affair, and now a court case and divorce proceedings. This is a story of the world's worst breakup. But as we move into verse 5, we see that while we are a people who very often do not long for God, God is a God who longs for us. Let me say that again. While we are a people who very often do not long for God, God is a God who longs for us. Our desires are misdirected, but God's desire, verse 5, is one of jealous longing for the Spirit, for the, for the life that he has breathed into us, into you, into me. Now that jealous longing places a high demand upon us. Just as the, the, the faithfulness and the love of one spouse demands the faithfulness and love of the other, God desires that we desire him as much as he does for us. We do not. But just look at what James says next. But he gives us more grace. God is the God who loves you so much, who cares for you so deeply, that even as you, with misdirected desires, climb into bed with the world, he gives you more grace. Even as you choose to walk away from him, and you and I do this each and every day, seeking to find your peace and satisfaction in anything other than him, he loves you. His jealous longing for you is one that makes him angry, rightly so, but it also leads him to lavish his grace upon you. This isn't the world's worst breakup. It's the greatest redemption story. You have run away from God and you continue, even as a Christian believer, to flirt with the world. But God gives you more grace. And I wish we could spend longer. But the question is, what do we do with this? As a church, where do we go from here? And as a people, where do we go? Well, there is a response. There is a response from our side. A response that immediately follows the grace of God. And it is to repent with a spirit of humility. The theme of humility, well, it kind of bookends this next section. Verse 6, God shows favour to the humble. And verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. And it is the theme or the motif of humility that provides the impetus for the staccato of instructions that James sort of gives in verses 7 to 9. Submit to God, resist the devil, wash your hands, grieve. He's telling us to do all sorts of different things here, but they all flow from a posture of humility. What is humility then? What does it look like? 
Well, I want to note four things, briefly, as I encourage us to be a church that displays this spirit of humility as we respond to God's grace, rather than a spirit of division as we pursue the world. So, four things of what humility, I guess, looks like or does for us. Firstly, humility encourages us to go to God. James says that humility looks like, verse 7, submitting yourselves to God. That's because humility is able to recognize that our desires are often misdirected and we don't always know what's good for us. And so humility draws us to the God who does know. It allows us to submit to a higher authority than our own. We're not our own kings or our own bosses. And humility encourages us to dwell less upon ourselves and more upon the God to whom we're called to submit to. Just look with me at verse 8. Come near to God and he will rebuke you? No. He will cast judgment upon you? No. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Friends, you do not need to have it all figured out. God doesn't say, come back to me when you've got the right attitude. No, he loves you, even in your hardness of heart. And humility allows you to see that you don't really have anything to bring. It takes you out of yourself, out of your dependence upon yourself, and encourages you to cast yourself upon God, upon his grace, and upon his goodness. Are you struggling with sin? Is there a part of the world that you're constantly tempted to swim in? The answer is yes. (laughs) We all are. And I hope that this passage is, is a conviction. It's a conviction to me as I prepare. The answer is come near to God. Or, or maybe you're not a Christian today. Maybe you're someone who has feel you've fully given yourself over to the world and you feel a sense of the chasing after the wind that the pursuit of happiness is outside of God. Friends, James would tell you that you're an enemy of God. But then he would tell you that God loves his enemies. Come near to God. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Number two, humility enables us to grow in grace. There's a sense here, I think, in which James's language is comforting. God gives us more grace. Come near to him. But there's also, there's no doubt about it, an edge and a bite to his writing here. He pulls no punches. He calls his readers sinners and double-minded. And I want us to feel the force of this passage. A self-help book will tell you that everything's okay. Love yourself. The problem's out there, not in here. But humility, I guess, allows you and even forces you to look your sin in the eye. It it, it forces you to see that that there are lots of ways in which you 
rebel against God. But as you do that, as you look your sin in the eye, it enables you to grow in grace. James's command here is for us to wash our hands and purify our hearts. Don't misunderstand him here. This is not something that we have to do in order to come to God. This is talking about repentance and growth. Christian, are you sometimes frustrated with the sin that you keep going back to? I know I am. Humility is a powerful weapon in your arsenal. It allows you to know your sin, but to know it's not all down to you. Indeed, James says that the devil himself can be resisted when the Christian is armed with humility. For the devil wants to keep you focused on you, striving in your own strength. But humility is a repentance that acknowledges that were it not for God's grace, our hands and hearts could never be clean. Were it not for what Jesus has done on the cross, we could never, ever be clean. But Jesus has gone to the cross. God is gracious. So go, wash your hands and wash, purify your hearts and grow. Grow in grace. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. Thirdly, humility allows us to express our pain. Maybe verse 9 feels like a little bit of a strange verse to you. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. That doesn't sound very nice. Who would want to be in a religion that involves or encourages that kind of thinking? But James isn't saying that we are to be morbidly depressive all the time. Nor is he saying that there is no place for joy and laughter in the Christian journey. Of course not. He's simply acknowledging that we can and should look at the brokenness of this world and indeed our own participation in it and grieve. Humility allows us to recognise that life isn't perfect and we aren't perfect and we can shed real tears of sorrow as we see that with clarity we do not need to repress or or pretend that everything's hunky-dory we don't need to wear a mask papering over our weakness and struggle with a forced smile and a quick exit have you come today to church hurting well you're in the right place Have you come to church today sinning when you're in the right place? Have you come today to church wishing that you were anybody else but you? Brothers and sisters, you're in the right place. Church is the place for imperfect people to weep over their imperfection and rejoice in the God of grace. So humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. Fourthly, and finally, humility prompts us to keep the peace. In verses 11 to 12, James returns to our relationships with one another. 
Relationships that, because of desires that battle within us, they often spill over into quarrels and fighting. Even in church, that happens. And it often takes the form of slandering one another, speaking against one another, judging one another, lording it over one another, and looking down upon those whom we feel don't match our own standards. Well, humility levels the playing field, doesn't it? We're all weak, and we've all got these misdirected desires. We're all people who flirt with the world. So who are you to judge your neighbor, says James? Exactly. We cannot judge one another, because only God is judge. And we all stand guilty in need of the more grace that God gives us. No one of us is better than the other. And humility pulls us to that conclusion. It begins to remove the one-upmanship and jealousy that so often characterizes our human relationships. It exists within all of us. Take a look at your own hearts and humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. Friends, we live in a world in which we're constantly tempted to find our fulfillment in anything other than God. It's a constant pull. We are left, therefore, with unfulfilled desires, desires that spill over into division and strife, envy and jealousy, bitterness and malice. Church, know God's grace in all of this and humble yourself. Let us be a church characterised by humility, going to God with our weakness, growing in grace and loving one another rather than fighting. Let me pray for us now. Heavenly Father, as we spend some time in James's words here, I guess we feel convicted. These are provocative words. These are words that maybe we don't like. We want to say, hey, it's anybody else but me. But Father, we confess that all too often, yes, we do flirt with the world. Yes, we do go to the world and seek to find our pleasure and satisfaction in it. We confess that as James writes, you spiritual adulterer as well, there's a part of us that hears that and goes, yes, I know that's me. But we thank you that you do not call us to just try that little bit harder. (laughs) But you give us more grace. Heavenly Father, give us as a church, as a people, as individuals, as families, the humility to know where we are weak and to come near to you to draw near to you, to cast ourselves upon you in all things. And as we do that and find the freedom from, from our sin and from our brokenness, help us to grow in grace and love one another. Thank you, O Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.